0: A hero is someone who makes the world a better place. And if you're an RN, LPN, mental health clinician, or counselor, then you're already a hero because you value wellness, treatment of disease, and prevention of illness. So why not dedicate your next career move to a place where heroes make a difference every day? The Hamden County Sheriff's Office. Join a team where you can offer empathy and opportunity by just being who you are, a hero. Visit hcsoma.org or just Google the Hamden County Sheriff's Office and join a team where being a hero is a daily occurrence. The ideas and opinions expressed in this show do not reflect the views of WHMP or Saga Communications. This show may contain subject matter not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Your work will fill a large part of your life, and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. Steve Jobs Hi, I'm Lisa Riley, and I'm here every week with The Hustler Files to share stories and bring change makers to the table because there are so many people out there who are working and hustling to change their lives or find people to help them change their lives and put their past in the rearview mirror. And of course, we know it takes that village of resources and people to help those who are hustling to carve that new path and prove that failure isn't final. This is the Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. Today's guests are both assistant superintendents with the Franklin County Sheriff's Office in Western Massachusetts. But because they both have storied careers developing and implementing treatment programs within the criminal justice system, and their boss, Sheriff Chris Donnellan, is himself very progressive in how he approaches the treatment of those incarcerated and under his care, our guests have had the opportunity to try travel around the United States, and impart their programs and successes with other less progressive prisons and jails. Welcome Ed Hayes and Levin Schwartz to The Hustler Files.
2: Thanks, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: Yeah, thank you.
1: Okay, who's Ed, who's Levin?
3: I'm Ed. (laughs) That would mean I'm Levin.
1: Perfect. We want to get your voices a little bit more defined. So before we dive into your interfacings with other prisons and jails around the United States, let's give our listeners a little bit of background on each of you.
2: Sure, my name's Ed Hayes. Like you mentioned, Lisa, I'm an assistant superintendent for the Franklin County Sheriff's Office, where I served for about 10 years as the director for treatment. I'm focused a little bit more specifically on the administrative work of our methadone clinic and collaborating with community providers.
3: And uh, my name is Levin Schwartz. I'm a social worker, and I've been with the sheriff's office for about 10 years as well, helping to develop the clinical and the reentry programs at the facility. So the ways in which we help support people who are in the facilities, and then how we help support people once they get out.
1: So on this show, we've met with various reentry Superintendents and correction officers, and the work you do is just so impactful to the progressiveness of changing the criminal justice system and prison reform. But you two have teamed up, and I guess (laughs) I'd like to know first off did Sheriff Donnellan bring you together to sort of become this tag team, or how (laughs) did all that start?
2: Many years ago, um, when I was first in the role of treatment director, we were extremely fortunate to find Eleven. We were working with a woman named Chris Nyman, who was a kind of godmother to our program. She was formerly um, a site director for ServiceNet, a local behavioral health provider. And we contracted with Chris, and she highly recommended Levin to come on board to provide us with clinical support and reentry understanding. You did a little I bit of I graduated Smith
3: work. in 2011, and then we had children, and then I started working at the outpatient clinic. And during the outpatient clinic in 2013, Chris was running it. And so she said, there's an opportunity to run a group at the Franklin County Sheriff's Office. Are you interested? And then you were wearing a plaid shirt (laughs) and hustling around the building, sweating profusely. And it was kind of like the sheriff's first entrance into modern evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapy for folks at the jail. And then, long story short, you guys wrote a grant. I had moved on from ServiceNet, and then uh, I applied for the position.
2: And it's been, yeah, we've been remarkably lucky. (laughs) So that was, what, 2014? uh, Almost 10 10 years ago. And Levin has been really instrumental in building what our program is in, in every way that's meaningful. Our roles have, have transitioned a little bit in the mm-hmm. past maybe six months, and Sheriff Donlin has asked us really to focus um, on these particular areas that we mentioned, working on grants, going attending conferences, presenting the work that we do, providing technical assistance to jurisdictions all throughout the country. He really wants to focus on this. He sees treatment as being such a huge priority At the jail, there are neighbors or community members, and and typically people are only there if you're a sentenced man, maybe six months, maybe eight months. If you're a pretrial detainee, less than a week. So, your
1: reentry and treatment services are really important that they're tuned into that. Person that has come behind the walls, so that you, because you know you only have X amount of time with them. That's right. Yeah,
3: and designing a system that is responsive to the kind of the cadence in which people are entering and leaving, and and making sure that we're providing those interventions, however brief they are, requires just a very persistent. Focus on uh, the population and keeping up to date with what modern evidence is telling us, and then also being very attuned to the needs of the population.
1: So let's dig in a little bit. Where is this evidence based treatment? Where was it initially incubated?
2: There's a problem with jails in the United States, and the problem is that we're very siloed away from the community. There are some ways in which we do that strategically and on purpose, like if someone is creating a problem for themselves. And for others, they could be arrested and then detained. And so that's an intentional siloing. But there's ways that we are unfortunately siloed away from best practices in the community. So a lot of what we did was implement the modern standard of care, but in a jail environment, which sadly is it's quite uncommon. Yeah,
3: there's really nothing remarkable about the treatment program except that it's behind the wall. You know, you would find the same type of treatment practices in outpatient clinics, anywhere where there is uh, regulations to ensure best practices are followed.
1: So is it voluntary or is everyone required to go through these evidence-based treatment programs once they get behind the wall?
2: It is voluntary and there are some very powerful incentives. So if you're a sentenced person and and you decide, okay, I'm interested in my recovery from trauma, my recovery from substance use disorders, and, and that's basically... Most everyone in the jail has really high trauma and they struggle with substance use disorders. So if you're sentenced and you participate in our treatment plan, then you have 10 days reduction in your sentence each month. So that's a very powerful incentive. And we've built in a number of other incentives in different ways to encourage people, to motivate them. A number of people that we work with, the majority might not identify in that moment as Ready for treatment.
3: Mm-hmm. So you know when you come into jail, there's a lot of things that you're, you're being you're you're being sent there against your will. You aren't necessarily moving towards anything in that moment, right? And you know, think about the things that give us meaning in our lives. We're often moving towards these things, and they take ongoing, committed actions. Whether it's being a you know, a patient father or being a, an effective employee. And so there's a lot of trying to move away from the consequences of the behaviors that have landed them in jail, whether it's addiction or whether it's involvement in the justice system or whether it's interpersonal problems uh, at home or, you know, X, Y, and Z, poverty, racism, et cetera. Um, and so while we were designing this program, we were trying to develop this idea of, sure, there's a there's a part of this that we're trying to move away from, but, but a larger part of this is what are we moving towards? And so how do we structure the environment to very consciously provide opportunities for people to move towards the things that matter most to them, that they define as most important to them. So a very holistic approach to treatment, including medication for opioid use disorders. So all of this package, a very holistic approach, is meant to provide this idea of what are you moving towards? And it's okay to move to, away from some things in lives too, but trying to move away from things in life, void of also trying to move towards things in life, mm-hmm. really just leads short-term gains.
1: So all of us in life spend our entire lives, or most of us do, on this journey, right? Mm. And we're always moving towards something. The bigger house, the better car, the different job. These are large goals on this journey. And then we fill in with the playing the guitar, taking yoga, having friends for dinner, going on Mm -hmm. a trip to Europe. You have these men and women for such a short period of time. How do you even begin to start to get them to think about moving towards something when they're traumatized in most cases, and they have an addiction, at Mm. at least 85% of them have addictions. And so how do you manage that? It just seems almost like it's an impossible task.
2: (laughs) One of the big problems that people with significant trauma face they don't have a lot of experience of what to do with free time. When someone has significant trauma, we have a tendency to perseverate. It's hard for us to not think about it. And people might experience this themselves in a smaller way. You know, you wake up at 3 a.m. and you can have all of these 3 a.m. thoughts, these doubts, these like harsh feelings about what you said, what you did, a lot of shame response. And it's this is like, whatever that experience is, it's much more powerful for the people that we work with that are incarcerated in our system. So what we try to do is introduce to them ways in which we can enjoy like spending time for ourselves with each other, recreational things, enrichment. Just like Levin said, we're not so much of the focus on treatment in jails has been based on the war on drugs. And, you know, illicit drug use is bad, right? But we can't spend our lives just simply like saying no to everything and removing these problems fr- from our life we have to learn how to spend time recreationally how to enjoy life. And so, you know, some of the programs that we offer the jail are focused on that like we have a gardening program.
1: This is a really interesting conversation and we're going to have to take a break in a second, but I think there are people that aren't even behind the wall that struggle with what mm. to do with free time and I've known a few people in my life that have addiction issues and I've noticed that when they do have free time, they don't know how to do anything productive with it or even just to meditate or be at peace because they were always so used to being on drugs or alcohol. I mean, even to go to a party, and I know we've had this conversation along the way where, and I think it might have been Sheriff Donilon who brought it up about where You go to an event or a party and you have to learn how to interact without the drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. because you've never not had them in your system. I
2: mean, the people that we work with, many of them start using substances to self-medicate for their trauma in their very early childhood and so that's a, it's a tough habit to break when you learn it at age 9, 10, 11.
3: Coming back to the question of how do we very quickly respond within sh- such a short period of time to motivate, and I and I think that part of this is the way in which someone enters the system. So at our facility for medication for an opioid use disorder, for example, nearly at what's the current statistic for people who enter a facility? Like in the 50% higher than that, right? Opioid use yeah. disorder,
2: 55, yeah.
3: yeah. And so the majority of these individuals who will come in under, inf- under the influence of or detoxing experience a, a medication first model where we're looking to stabilize them immediately. Most jails do not offer any sort of medication assisted treatment initially. This type of immediate primary care response to individuals to help them regulate even for people who are pre adjudicated, who are there for one day will be offered the same intervention which is a dramatically different approach than most jails who just offer, you know, treatment for people who are sentenced. So we're treating a person as if they they matter. <laughs> And the recognition that, you know, a lot of life becomes dominated by the perseverative or compulsive thoughts around use and the, the, the rituals connected to that. So it's very easy to ask a client, what do you, you know, what would you like less of in your life? But, you know, what do you want to be moving towards in your life and who and what matters most to you in your life? And it takes much longer to cultivate that willingness to hold that because there's a lot of vacancy in that thought because, or there's a lot of uh, loss in that thought because these are things that matter to me and they haven't been connected to.
1: I think that's a great question and it's not something we've thought about but we need to take a quick break so Ed and Levin if you'll please stick around for a few more minutes grab another cup of coffee listeners we'll be right back with more of the Hustler Files. Under the leadership of Sheriff Patrick Kayleen the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office offers medication assisted treatment for those struggling with opioid addictions. This is Mindy Katie Director of Medication for Opioid Use Disorders. We want you all to know that we provide community-based support and referral services with our partners at the Northampton and Wear Recovery Centers. If you or someone you know is living with alcohol or drug addiction or just simply needs some direction, we're here and we're happy to help. Stop by or find us at HampshireSheriffs.com. Welcome back to this week's The Hustler Files. I'm Lisa Riley, and we're having a very enlightening conversation with Ed Hayes and Levin Schwartz, both assistant superintendents at the Franklin County Sheriff's Office. But because of their experience and successful programming and re-entry with incarcerated individuals, they've been traveling to other states sharing their progress and actionable programs in hopes of changing the face of incarceration. So Ed and Levin, again, so thrilled to that you're both here today. We have not explored this subject in our first 25 episodes of the show. And I'm looking forward to hearing some of the stories you have. So walk us through the good, the bad, the ugly, what you've been seeing as you've been traveling around and what kind of conferences and connections you're making with other prisons or jails around the country.
2: Well, there is the good and the bad and the ugly in the United States. We're broadcasting from Massachusetts and our jail is located in Greenfield, Massachusetts, and there is a lot to be proud of in Massachusetts. We don't get everything right. <laughs> There's a lot of work to do, that is for sure. We have the lowest incarceration rate of any of the 50 states. And the other close contenders, you know, that you'll see they're all New England states and you know, for instance, the incarceration rate in Massachusetts is about 96 people per 100,000. And if we compare that to the heavy hitters of incarceration, which are located primarily in the south of the United States, you know, you'll find Mississippi with a rate of about 575 incarcerated people per 100,000. That's six times the rate. Six times as many people are incarcerated in Mississippi as in Massachusetts.
1: Is that Due to the socioeconomic situation of some of the southern states with jobs and education and life in general?
2: Certainly, it's a multifactorial problem. There's all kinds of things happening all at once. But One alarming statistic is there's a kind of assessment that we perform on people when they come into jail, when they're sentenced, and that is called a risk-need responsivity assessment. They're done in jails throughout the country. It's a kind of gold standard assessment, And, and what that assessment tells you is the likelihood of someone to come back to jail if they're released in a year. What you'll find if you look at Massachusetts jails is that people score primarily in the very high or high-risk rate. That's what it should look like. If you look in the southern states, you find a tremendous number of people that score low or very low or medium. Okay, so if there's something happened, right, if they broke a law, if they're being held accountable, there are probably better programs that are community-based Based rather than incarceration based and so that's a problem that's a waste of taxpayer resources and also people who are low risk to recidivate if if you score low on this on this scale and you hang out for six months with a group of people that are very high risk you're not doing anything to help public safety you're you're worsening it you're creating a situation where when that low-risk persons released, they've graduated to a high-risk person. So this is a sort of negative feedback loop that people can get caught up in systems throughout the United States. And that's one area where the whole country needs to do a lot better if we compare ourselves to other countries because we're far beyond an outlier in our incarceration rates. But within our country, Massachusetts stands out as doing good work.
1: What is the reason that these low-risk people in states like Mississippi... Don't these states have community-based programs to help these low-risk people so they don't have to go behind the wall and eventually
3: become high-risk? I'm just speculating. There's a distinction between... Treatment programs, between like the way in which treatment inside these facilities has has developed, and you would say that there's a component of this that, from a socio- sociological perspective, and then there's a component of this from a treatment perspective. I say it boils down to stigma. I think it boils down to biases that are found within the systems and that have been present in the justice system for ever, that connect to a sense of moral failing or a sense of uh, pejorative stigma-based associations. And that being said, I think there's also a lack of evidence-based sentencing, evidence-based responding. Like, how do you respond to somebody who's broken a law objectively, but know that this individual suffers from trauma, addiction, and hasn't had a, a, a successful education? What's the court's response to this, right? And I think that we have to evolve because we know that what we're doing is not working. You know, and, and you know, I'm going to bring it back to Massachusetts for just one second. We've been able to look at what we've done, right? We've been able to say, okay, what? how did it exist in 2011 before treatment started? We had a three-year recidivism rate of 53.3% before this program started. In 2015, we're looking at a three-year recidivism rate of 32.2%. So this is like a, a roughly a 40% reduction improvement in recidivism numbers. And so you have, you have these programs that have effective responses, but these they can't just be in the jail. They have to be from the jail all the way through the sequential intercept mapping of the court systems, how an individual moves through these systems, and how do they move towards a life of vitality as opposed to stuck in this cycle? Because even in Massachusetts, 60% of people in houses of correction have been incarcerated 5 to 11 times.
1: Oh, my God. I had no idea. that mm. That's a statistic we haven't heard on the show before. Yes, from
3: the council state governments.
1: Yeah. Wow. So when you go around the country to conferences, or I think Sheriff Donnellan mentioned, you will get invited to other sheriff's departments. Are you <coughs> only still having these conversations about what good is happening in Massachusetts and how progressive the state is at the jail level? Or are you actually even going into some of the state prisons, the Departments of Corrections?
3: Uh, my, most recently, I was able to uh, head out to the state of Washington, who's provided um, some technical assistance from the um, Policy Research Associates, who has the grant for the SAMHSA Gain Center. And they're trying to figure out a way for their entire state system to become an opioid treatment program. And it's just incredibly complicated because you have the Department of Corrections, you have all the sheriff's departments, you have people who are here short-term, long-term lifers. How do you devise a system that provides medication for an opioid use disorder? And then the continuity of care because it's a huge state. It's a very wide state with very different needs. And so right now we're in the place of strategic planning on how they're going to get from not offering to offering and maintaining Uh, or inducing an individual and then providing proper aftercare. So it's it's a wild, (laughs) wild experience because in Massachusetts, there's actually quite a few resources. Um.
1: You know, I'm going to definitely have to have you back, both of you, Ed and Levin, at some point, probably in the next couple of months, because we are running out of time. And I have to ask you both a very important question. I ask all my guests. And I want to dig in a little bit deeper. I want to talk about, when I bring you back again, about the educational piece of this and how you're really building something bigger than the Franklin County Sheriff's Office probably initially thought because your research and your education background and and what you can do to bring grants in to help other states. I mean, you're basically building another nonprofit organization within the Franklin County Sheriff's (laughs) Office. At least that's how I would look at it. But we have to ask this question because um, our listeners expect it at this point. (laughs) So, Ed, I'm going to start with you. I'm a believer we all have life assignments, and um, they can change, but you know we all we're all on that journey. So, what do you think your life assignment right now is?
2: I, well, <laughs> I'm here, <laughs> imprisoned in, in the middle of this big problem with the opioid crisis and with mass incarceration. And I think, thanks to Sheriff Chris Donnellan, I'm in a place that I can affect some change. And I, through the years, I've seen that differently. Working with clients one on one. But now working more with larger systems, larger jurisdictions and affecting policy change. I think that for me, that's my life goal. (laughs) That's my life mission right now is to see that through, follow that through.
1: That's a very admirable one, definitely. And Levin, how about you? I see you kind of looking (laughs) off into space with your brain clicking
3: away. Uh, Before this, I was a musician. I spent time in here before this, played with a band and I just had a reunion with my, my band. He just got married, and I from he's out in Michigan, Detroit area. And so this idea of what my mission is, I, I think actually my mission is uh, to be a social worker. And what that means it, it can vary, right? So whether that's touring in a band and helping the band be a cohesive group, or whether that is working with uh, institutions to critically look at what we're doing within this system and to advocate for more effective strategies to help people be less dogmatic, be less uh, governed by, by ineffective history, you know, and to challenge ourselves and to look at ourselves and say, can we do better? Um, I, think, I think it's, I think, and I think social work is really well set up to do that.
1: Well, I think you're both bridging the gap in a few different places between incarceration and social work and evidence-based trauma treatment. And I'm very grateful that you're here today. So thank you again for coming. Thank you for being changemakers and shining a light on why incarceration is more of a punishment paradigm in so many other places than it is um, a treatment one. And I want to come back and explore that a little bit deeper down the road. We'll be right back to wrap up this week's The Hustler Files. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
2: Did you know the Franklin County Sheriff's Office has programs to support our seniors? This is Sheriff Chris Donnelly. Our Triad Unit provides free medical equipment to senior citizens who need help staying in their homes. This could mean the difference between going home after rehab or into a nursing home. Our incarcerated men at the Franklin County Jail work to repair and maintain donated wheelchairs, scooters, walkers, and hospital beds that we then make available to seniors for free. Just another service our Sheriff's Office is proud to provide for you and your family.
1: We are back. And this week, I gathered a mix of thoughts from one of my favorite free publications, The Daily Coach. Wisdom comes from opening your mind to new ideas, even ideas that seem contrary to your worldview. You can't make a person do anything, you can only create an environment in which people choose to do the right things. Appreciating each other's perspectives is a form of bravery that helps us build a bridge of understanding nothing in life is of any value unless it is shared with others. Nobody reaches their full potential in isolation. When people trust each other, differences are strengths. When they don't trust each other, differences are divisive. And that's a wrap on another Hustler Files for this week. It is always my hope that the changemakers that we bring to the show release limiting beliefs around incarceration and the stigmas that follow those who reenter society. I sincerely believe that it's only through storytelling and education that we can truly activate change." Thank you, as always, to our guests and advertisers for their support. And you can find this show and all of our shows on the WHMP.com podcast page and also on any of your favorite podcast sites. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can email me at lisa at whmp.com. Have a wonderful week ahead. And remember, don't be ashamed of your story. It will inspire others. See you next week right here on The Hustler Files.
0: The Sheriff's Shuffle 5K Run-Walk is back. And this year, it raises funds to support Sheriff Nick Kochi's Youth Leadership Academy. Want to learn more? Listen up.
3: What's the Youth Leadership Academy?
0: The Youth Leadership Academy is a summer day camp that provides Western Mass youth ages 7 through 12 positive role models and life experiences for those who can't afford a traditional camp experience. This year, 120 children participated. Who pays for the Youth Leadership Academy? All expenses are covered by donations like the Sheriff's Shuffle. So when is the Sheriff's Shuffle? It's Sunday, October 15th. And where is it? It's at the Ashley Reservoir in Holyoke.
3: And what time should I be there?
0: Registration starts at 8 a.m. The race begins at 10.30 a.m. How much is it? It's only $35 to pre-register.
3: Where can I sign up?
0: Google HamptonCountySheriff.org and click on the link. Hey, where are you going? I'm going to sign up for the Sheriff's Shuffle. See you there.